Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll be with us during this time in your word, Lord. That you'll speak to us, Lord. I pray that you'll speak through me and just bless your people with your word. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, this is our third take on this. It's been a a myriad of technical difficulties, but uh, hopefully we got it dialed in now. We'll see. We are getting into the Easter season, and um, so we picked back up our study of John. We're in John 19 this week, and so this week and next week we'll be looking at John 19, and then Easter Sunday we'll be... um, opening up John 20, the resurrection chapter. So I'm excited about that. You may remember at this point in the text, Jesus has already been betrayed in the garden. He's already been arrested. He's already been tried before the Sanhedrin. And now we find him on trial before Pontius Pilate. And... um. So we're going to pick up the text in chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown together of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Think about this situation for just a minute. God existed from eternity past. Nothing else existed. The triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existed together in perfect harmony, perfect fellowship. And at some point in time, and I guess that's not even really correct to say because time didn't exist in eternity past. But at some point, God spoke creation into existence. He speaks time into existence. He speaks the universe into existence. And we see from Scripture that the only thing that was actually formed by the hand of God was us, was humanity, was those who were created in the image of God. Everything else was, was spoken into existence. And we learn in John chapter 1 and in Colossians chapter 1 that it was actually God the Son who did the act of creation. God the Son spoke creation into existence. All things were created by him and for him, it tells us in Colossians 1. And we learn that Genesis 3, that man fell, right? That man sinned. And, And in an attempt to redeem To to, to save humanity, God the Son became a man. He became human flesh. He was born among us. He was that Emmanuel, God with us. And he was born to a a poor, humble, single mother in in a small country village. And he grows up and he begins to minister to the people, to love the people around him. And here we find Jesus, God the Son. We find the creator of the universe. We find the one who who spoke and flung the stars into space. Standing here before Pilate and these Roman guards that, that he created. On a planet that he created. 
We find him being (coughs) scourged, being whipped with a whip made out of animal skins, animals that he created. And at the end of that whip were pieces of rock, rocks that he created, wearing a, a crown of thorns that he created, driven into his head. Roman soldiers mocking him, beating him, pulling on his beard, punching him in the face. We find him wearing this robe and a fake crown and a fake scepter. And they pretend to worship him as they beat him so severely that his skin is peeled off of his flesh. This is the Jesus who we're talking about. The one who created them, the one who loved them. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. This is an important point for us, both theologically and prophetically. Theologically, it's important to note (coughs) that Jesus was not found guilty, that he was innocent of any crime, because we understand what the scripture says concerning sin. That we all have sinned. Like sheep, we all have gone astray. That the wages of sin is death. Like it says in Ezekiel, the soul that sinneth shall surely die. But because Jesus was innocent, because Jesus was sinless, he didn't have to die to pay for his own sins. And because he didn't have to die to pay for his own sins, he was able to die to pay for the sins of another. Right? We, we refer to that as a substitutionary atonement, right? Atonement means to make payment for something. And substitution obviously means to switch something for something else, right? So substitutionary atonement meant that Jesus pays the cost for our sin himself. Because he was perfect, he didn't have to pay for his own sin, so he was able to pay for another sin. And because he was God, His sacrifice was big enough to cover all sin, for all humanity, for all time. So it's important theologically that he be found innocent. And it's important prophetically as well. If you remember that in Exodus, the Passover lamb that was to be sacrificed was to be inspected first. And it had to be found pure and perfect without spot or blemish. And as we know, Jesus was to become the Lamb of God that was going to be slain for the sins of the world. And so he had to go through that same inspection process. He had to be found perfect and blameless and righteous and without sin. So verse 5. Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So we see here Jesus presented wearing this crown and this robe. And they were mocking him. People didn't realize that he was their king. And you know, in scripture, we understand that Jesus is is the king of kings. But we need to realize something else, that (coughs) Jesus was the direct descendant of King David on both his mother's side, on Mary's side, and on his stepfather Joseph's side. That he was was literally of royal lineage. 
He was of David's house. And David's house at this point had crumbled. It had fallen. Rome was in charge. But Jesus, in a very literal sense, was of royal blood. He was royalty. And there again, fulfilling a prophecy in the Old Testament that said that the scepter would not pass from Judah. And we know that Jesus belonged to the tribe of Judah. But the people, they, they missed this altogether. They didn't realize who Jesus was. Even today, people still miss who Jesus is. That he's the true king, that he's the Lord of all creation. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. This is particularly sad to me. This is the leaders. This is the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. This is people who should have been first to recognize who Jesus was and to worship him as Lord. And we find them here calling for his death. And think about this for a minute. And this isn't in the text or anything. But think about that day when Judgment Day comes. You know, and and we're all in that long line waiting for our turn to stand before the throne of God. And imagine those priests who cried out, crucify him. They're getting closer to the front of the line. And they begin to, to make out the shape of the judge, the shape of God. And they're getting anxious. They're getting excited. And as they finally get close enough and they're be able to begin to, to recognize his, his facial features and they recognize who the judge is, that it's Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom they rejected and crucified, <clears throat> the one whom they cried out, let his blood be on us and upon our children. That, that, that sudden epiphany, that, that realization that, that they were wrong. I think there are going to be so many people in the world just like this. You know, they're going to get there on judgment day. People who laughed at Jesus, people who scorned Jesus, religious people who who thought they had it all together. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. And he's going to say, you know, you, you definitely didn't know me. And I've said this countless times concerning judgment day. Jesus isn't going to send anyone to hell. And I know some people are, what are you saying, pastor? Well, hold on a second. Let me explain. Jesus doesn't send anyone to hell. You need to know that. Not a single person. You know what happens? On judgment day, he opens up the book and he just confirms us. He confirms the decision that we've made in this life. It's like this. You know, if you've ever flown, you buy your ticket and you go check in at the front counter and you go through security. But right before you're at the main gate and you get ready to board, you have to show your boarding pass, right? And they look at it and make sure that your name and that your flight number match the plane. 
And that's essentially what's going on. On Judgment Day, the Lord opens up the books and he just makes sure that you're getting on the flight that you booked for yourself. That's how it works. So Pilate said, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Pilate again says he's not guilty. He's an innocent man. He was innocent in a moral sense. He was innocent in a legal sense, right? He was innocent in a spiritual sense. Pilate had no grounds in which to execute Jesus, especially to crucify Jesus, because that was the worst form of execution. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to the law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the son of God. The religious leaders say, listen, Pilate, this, this Jesus character here, he's not innocent. He's a, he's a guilty man. He broke our law. He's been claiming that he is God and he deserves to be put to death. And, and, and they're right. If somebody were to go around and, and, and be claiming to be God, according to the Jewish law, they deserve to be put to death with one exception, unless they really were God. And Jesus really was God. So, so it was okay for him to be saying that. And Jesus very clearly said that on many occasions. He very clearly made that claim of deity over and over again. There's so many examples. He says, my father and I are one. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He enters his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. You may remember in the other Gospels, Pilate's wife had a dream. She had a vision and she told her husband, look, you need to just stay away from this Jesus character. Don't have anything to do with him here. And the priests here, they're, they're repeating these claims that Jesus was making that he was divine. That he was, again, Emmanuel, God with us. And so Pilate, he's getting a little concerned. He's getting a little scared. <clears throat> Remember that the Roman people at that time, they had a whole host of deities. They, they had the whole pantheon, many gods. And they believed that, that the gods would come down from heaven and they would oftentimes have ch- children with, with mortal women and have these demigods. And so this idea that Jesus might be a god or that he might be a, the son of a God, it, it, was a, it was a reality in the mind of Pilate, and it frightened him. So Pilate calls Jesus back into the office, and he says, Jesus, tell me, where are you from? And Pilate knew, obviously, where Jesus was born, right? Where he was from physically. He knew that he was Jesus of Nazareth from that region of Galilee. But he's asking this question in a, in a bigger sense. He says, Jesus, are you... Are you from the spiritual realm? Jesus, who, who, who are you descended from? Are you, are you from Mount Olympus? And Jesus doesn't answer. He just stands there silently. Again, fulfilling a prophecy. Remember Isaiah concerning the Messiah says this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before it shears is silent, 
So he opened not his mouth. Isaiah says the Messiah was going to be like a lamb to the slaughter who is silent before his oppressors. He doesn't open his mouth. And Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy here. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Pilate says, Jesus, answer me. And we almost get the sense of a little bit of of desperation, of of trepidation in in, in Pilate's voice. And it's almost like he's saying, Jesus, I, I don't want to do this. Give me a reason not to. He says, don't you know that I have the power to put you to death or to keep you alive? And who had the power, really? Remember Matthew chapter 26, back in the garden, Peter, after he pulls out his sword and chops off Malchus's ear, remember Jesus says, put the sword away, Peter. Don't you know that right now I could call down 12 legions of angels from heaven? And we know historically that in those days, a legion ranged from from 3,000 to 6,000 men. So in essence, Jesus is saying, look, don't you know that I have 36 to 72,000 angels that are right here, ready to swoop down to my defense? You may remember um, 2 Kings chapter 19. We saw in that instance, one angel came through and struck down 185,000 enemy soldiers. And Jesus says, look, I've got, I've got 72,000 angels right here waiting in the wings. Pilate says, I have the power. I'm in control. Little did he know. If, if Pilate could only have seen that, that spiritual reality, that he was surrounded by 12 legions of angels, ready to do battle on Jesus' behalf. And I can just imagine the angels there, just waiting, hand on the sword, waiting for Jesus to say the word. Right, Jesus kind of coughs and, what, what'd you say, are you ready? Right, they, were, <clears throat> they didn't like what they were seeing and they were ready to, they were ready to engage on Jesus' behalf. I was just thinking about this whole spiritual realm. And I wonder how our lives would be different if our eyes were opened up to the spiritual world around us. I wonder if we could see the angels that are, that are camped around us and if we could see the demons that are riding on some of our backs with their, with their hooks in our hearts and in our minds. I wonder how different we would be as Christians. How different would we pray? How different would we worship? How different would we study the Bible? Pilate stands before Jesus and he says, I have the power. So much irony there. I mean, it would almost be comical. It would almost be funny if it wasn't such a serious situation. Jesus answers in verse 11. And he says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate says, Jesus, I have the power to set you free. And Jesus says, Pilate, you don't have any power except the power that I gave you. You can't do anything 
unless I allow it to happen. Jesus is essentially saying, Pilate, you have no power over me. And we talked about this a little before in John, but I want to touch on two things here. First, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus. You know, we look at that sometimes and we think, oh, that's such a, such a great tragedy that Jesus, this innocent man, was murdered. But you need to understand, we need to understand that that was always the plan of God. That's why Jesus was born. And Jesus did other things while he was here, right? He taught, he worked miracles, he healed people, he ministered, he loved people, he, he raised the dead, all these things, but they were, they were secondary. The reason that he came, the reason that Jesus left his abode in heaven was to become a man so that he could die, so that he could atone for the sins of lost humanity. So in that regard, right, Pilate might think that he was in control, but he had no power at all. He was but a tool in the hands of the Lord. He was an instrument to be used in the divine plan of God. And second, I want to touch on the sovereignty of God. And we hear that term tossed around a little bit sometimes, the sovereignty of God. And it just means this, that God is in control of all things at all times. That he is in control of every detail of creation. And I want you to to fully understand and grasp this. Sometimes we think that God is just, you know, this really smart, really strong guy. And we might not articulate it that way, but that's the way we think about it sometimes. But he is absolutely eternal. And he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's not a lot-knowing. He's all-knowing all of the time. Every detail that occurs in the universe He says he's aware of every sparrow that falls to the ground. He knows the numbers of the hairs on every one of our heads. God is is the possessor of all knowledge. Second, God is omnipotent. He's all powerful. Not just really strong, but all powerful. Right? To my little kids, I might seem omnipotent. I might seem all-powerful as they're grabbing onto my biceps and I'm lifting them up, you know. But obviously, as they grow up, they realize, wow, dad has limits. He's not really all-powerful. But that's not the case with God. There are no limits to the strength of God. No limits to what he can accomplish or achieve. And the third thing that I want to note quickly, and it's not in the text, but it's important for us to understand here, that God is love. And note, I didn't say that God is loving. And he is, but that's not what I said. It says that God is love. His nature, his, his being is love. His overriding attribute is love. Everything that he does Every thought, every action is based on that characteristic. It's based on his nature. So think about this. We serve a God who, number one, knows every detail of our lives. 
Number two is all powerful. He has the power to change our lives. And number three is motivated by his love for us. What does that mean to us? It means that whatever life throws at us, it's okay because God is moving and he has a plan and it will benefit us. And a lot of times we say, how? How did those things that happened to me in the past benefit me? How are those tragedies that befell me, how are they an act of love? Well, you're here now. You're saved. You're born again. You're a child of God. You're on your way to heaven. And listen, I'm not saying that God caused those bad things to happen in your life. I'm not saying that God caused you to be abused or hurt or broken or neglected. His heart is broken over those things that happened to you. But I'm saying this. In his sovereign will and wisdom, he allows things to happen sometimes and then reworks those tragedies into something new and good. And we see that here. <clears throat> Mankind wickedly set about to murder Jesus Christ, who is the most perfect, loving, righteous man the world had ever seen. In fact, he was the only truly loving, righteous, perfect man that the world had ever seen. And, and, and these people, they, they engage in this wicked, depraved, sinful act. But our sovereign, loving, all-powerful God, he used that, that dastardly act to work the salvation of any who would choose to believe it. You understand what I'm saying there? I'm saying that the Father didn't kill Jesus, but he knew that it would happen, that he allowed it to happen, so it would ultimately accomplish his divine purposes. Some of you have been through a lot. Some of you have suffered greatly. And so I look at that, and I say, what, is, what does the Lord want to do with that? How does he want to use our suffering to his glory? How does he want to use those things and transform them to bring glory to himself? And I don't know. But I want to find out. And I want you to find out. I want to see, I want you to see how the Lord can take those tragedies and those hard times, those difficulties you've been, and reshape them and use them for the glory of God. From then on, verse 12, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So I want to note something here, and I think this is important. Pilate knew what the right thing to do was. And it seems like he wanted to do the right thing here. He knew that Jesus was innocent and he wanted to set Jesus free. But the crowd here, they're, they're, they're pressuring Pilate. You need to do this. You need to do what we want you to do, Pilate. Don't worry about Jesus. They're saying, listen to us. And what did Pilate do? 
He went into self-preservation mode and tried to please the crowd. He was motivated by the fear of men. And it seems like he believed the claims of Jesus to some extent. But he also feared the Jewish leaders. And I guess we need to to understand some of the, the, the historical and cultural context to really get what's going on here. They were bringing up an issue that Pilate had with Caesar. You see, for some reason, Pilate and Caesar's relationship was strained. And so Pilate was posted to Israel as a as a punishment. He was positioned as the governor of Israel as a punishment because Israel at that time, it wasn't a glamorous place to be posted. It wasn't Athens. uh, 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 It wasn't a a cultural center. It wasn't a a seaport. It wasn't anything nice. It was out in the desert with a bunch of, of rebellious people who wanted to kill you and were always in the midst of some kind of a riot. And and historically know that Pilate previously had had several issues, several major uprisings and, and re- revolts in Israel. And Caesar apparently had told Pilate that this was his, his last chance, that he'd better not mess up again or, or he was going to be in trouble for it. And so the leaders, they kind of remind Pilate of that. They bring it up a little bit. They say, listen, Pilate, you don't, you don't want to upset Caesar. You don't want... Someone to send a message telling him that you aren't really his friend. You better not you better not let Caesar find out that you're supporting another king instead of him. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the pavement seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, an Aramaic Gabbatha. Remember, Pilate had already declared Jesus innocent. He says, I find no fault with this man. Morally, legally, spiritually, Jesus was was faultless. He was perfect. But he's brought out again nonetheless. And I don't know Pilate's thought process. Maybe he hoped that the people seeing Jesus' body scourged and broken and bleeding, maybe he was hoping that that would be enough to appease them. And so Pilate, he sits down at at Gabbatha. And that word Gabbatha, as we saw, it means pavement. And it was this place in front of of the fortress where Pilate lived. And it was elevated. It was kind of lifted above the people. It was a place of of examination. And so you can picture the scene here of, of, of Pilate standing here with Jesus beaten and broken and scourged, looking for a way to to appease the crowds and let the people go. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. Now, for those following the story, you might notice a little issue with the chronology here. Didn't Jesus and the disciples already eat the Passover meal the night before? Remember when Jesus instituted the Last Supper? But here it says the next day was the Passover and they were in preparation for the Passover on this day. 
In fact, it says that it was the sixth hour. It was noon on the day of preparation for the Passover. What's the deal? There are a couple possible solutions to this. One's kind of complicated, and I'm not going to go into it right now, but it has to deal with the fact that there were more than one day of preparation for the Sabbath, and there were different Sabbaths, and it's a lot of... But, but the more probable answer is this. There were two different calendars used by the Jews in those days. There was the what was referred to as the traditional calendar, and the revised calendar. And they were both based on, on solar cycles. And sometimes the days, like the Passover, could have been off a couple days from each other. And remember, Jesus and John were from a different area of Israel than Matthew and Mark were. And Luke, of course, wasn't Jewish at all. So Matthew the Levite and Mark, who was present in Jerusalem, they may have celebrated Passover on the more traditional Passover day, the same day as the Jewish leaders would have from Jerusalem. Jesus and John, however, being that they were from up north, may have been celebrating the Passover on the other calendar, when that Passover took place a day earlier than the traditional Passover in Jerusalem. And if that's the case, there's no issue with the timeline. John and the disciples and Jesus would have had the Last Supper on the Galilean Passover. And then the next day when Jesus is on trial, it's the, it's the Passover in, in the region of Judea, if that makes sense. I know it's a lot of details, but for those who are interested in that sort of thing, it's important. But back to the story here. Pilate tells the people, he says, here is your king. Apparently, he's trying to balance what he seemed to believe about Jesus and pleasing the world. So he presents Jesus and he says, here is your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Now again, we need a little history lesson to fully grasp the, the significance of this verse. The Jewish people, even today, back then were, were fiercely nationalistic. They were very proud to be Jewish. And they absolutely hated that they were occupied by Rome. And that period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that, I guess we can call it an intertestament period, that period between Malachi and Matthew, there was, a, there was constant revolt going on. As you may know, if you, if you um, grew up Catholic or you've seen the Catholic Bible, they have the... First and second Maccabees. They they they're an account of this time period when there's this constant revolution and revolt and, and Israel trying to rise up and, and throw off the shackles of Greece and of Rome. And even in Jesus' day, all the time the Jews were were revolting and rebelling against this against this foreign occupation. I remember one of the apostles, Simon. 
He's often referred to as Simon the Zealot. Right? A zealot, he was one of these rebels. He's one of these, these freedom fighters. To the Romans, he was a, he was a terrorist. And, and that's why Pilate didn't want to be there. Because the Jews were just so much trouble. These zealots, these terrorists, always working to, to oust Rome. The Jews absolutely hated this foreign occupation. They hated the Romans. And the Jews also hated crucifixion. They viewed it as a curse. Paul talks about that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. He says, Cursed is anyone who hangs from a tree. And that's derived from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. The Jews, they didn't like crucifixion. And so you can see how irrational the leaders are at this point and how great their hatred was for Jesus. That they are consumed by hate and jealousy because they hated Caesar. They hated Rome. They hated Pilate. They hated that they had to submit to another nation. They hated crucifixion. But they hated Jesus even more than those things. They hated Jesus so much that they were willing to embrace crucifixion. They were willing to embrace Rome if it would see Jesus killed. And we see that in the world so often. This irrational hate for the things of God. This irrational hate for Jesus. And think about it for a minute. Why would anyone hate Jesus? He was perfect. He never hurt anyone. He fed the poor. He looked after kids. He stood up for the oppressed. He healed the sick and the lame and the deaf. He raised the dead. He was always loving. He was humble. He served others. What is there to hate about that? What is there to object to about that? And beyond that, he left everything in heaven. And he came to die in our place so we wouldn't have to. He paid the cost of our sin so we could go to heaven instead of hell. So that we could find peace and comfort and healing in this life on this earth. And people all the time, you know, I don't want to hear about Jesus. And they mock Jesus. And they use the name of Jesus as a, as a curse word. It's irrational, isn't it? Why would anyone hate Jesus? Why would anyone want to kill Jesus? The only reason I can think of is that his light and his love reveals our darkness and our depravity. Jesus, in his perfect character, in his perfect love, in his perfect life, it reveals how far we are from perfection. It reveals how sinful and lost and corrupt we are. You know, when I compare myself to people around town, you know, when I look at people who are out partying and clubbing and sleeping around and immoral, I can start to feel pretty good about myself. I can start to feel pretty righteous. You know, I'm, I'm okay. But when I compare myself to Christ, all that perception of me being okay, that perception of my righteousness, it shatters. 
You know, and if you graft it out, you know, a, a righteousness graph, you know, they might be here and I might be here, maybe, but Christ is in orbit. He's in outer space on that graph. His, his righteousness is so far above ours. And I think that people hate Jesus because he upsets our perceptions of ourselves. He upsets our ideas of our righteousness. And every one of us is going to be faced with that at some point. Jesus Christ here, he's revealed, he's brought out. He's brought to Gabbatha, the, the, the place of examination. This place where a decision had to be made. And each one of us has to come to our own Gabbatha. We have to look and say, are we going to give in to the world or are we going to stand beside Jesus? And that's exactly what happens in the next verse. Pilate has a decision to make here in Gabbatha. He has Jesus on one side, claiming to be God incarnate, the one who came to deliver the people from their sins. On the other side, he has the the voice of the world screaming, abandon Jesus, reject Jesus, don't listen to Jesus, don't believe in Jesus, kill Jesus, crucify, crucify. And Pilate had to decide what he was going to do with Jesus. And every one of us, just like Pilate, has to decide what we're going to do with Jesus. In verse 16, it says, And so he delivered him over to be crucified. That is such a tragic verse. And as a pastor, it breaks my heart. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've seen people who, who know who Jesus is. They know and understand all that Christ has done for them. So oftentimes I see people who are maybe even, they're involved in church. And they've maybe even served in ministry. But in the end, they end up rejecting the Lord. And they might not outwardly reject the Lord with their, with their words, but they're certainly rejecting the Lord with their choices and with their actions and with their lifestyles. They're rejecting the Lord by living how they want to live and doing what they want to do. Pilate here, he knew. He knew who Jesus was. And he rejects Jesus. He, he gives in. He knows what he believes about Jesus. That he was righteous. That he was innocent. That he was perfect. He knows who Jesus is. That he was God incarnate. The, the true king of all creation. And he should have fallen on the ground in front of Jesus and worshipped him. He should have given his life to Jesus and, and been forgiven of his sins. And born again and made a new creation in Christ. What does he do? He gives in. He gives in to the pressures of life, the pressures of the world. He gives in to peer pressure. And he rejects Jesus to appease those around him. He rejects what he knows to be true to please people around him. And he protects his own interests. 
Does that ring familiar for you? How often have we all done the same thing? How often have we all known what the right thing to do was? How often have we known what we should have done? Instead of doing what we should have done, we do what we want to do. We know what Jesus says, but the voices are crying out, don't listen to Jesus. Do what you want to do. Join our side. Come with us instead. How often have we given into the crowd when they're chanting, crucify, crucify? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6 talks about people who reject the gospel when they know it to be true. And it says they're crucifying Jesus again. Every day, every one of us is standing here at Gabbatha like Pilate. And we have a choice to make. Like Pilate, we know the truth. We know who Jesus is. And we have all these external pressures on us from family, from friends, sometimes from spouses, from husbands, from wife, from parents, from children, from bosses, from careers. And these voices are shouting, serve the world, serve yourself, turn away from Jesus. Come with us, come, come live it up, come have a good time. And it may be that you've already given in to those pleasures. You've given in to the pressure. Listen, Jesus is ready to forgive. He's ready to receive you back unto himself. He's ready to restore you. But you can only choose the world over Jesus so many times. And it's not that Jesus will ever stop forgiving you. It's not that you can ever out his grace. But here's the trouble. The trouble is this. Every time we reject Jesus, every time we turn our back on him and choose the world, choose our careers, choose that party, choose our girlfriend, our boyfriend, whatever it is, our hearts grow harder and harder and harder towards the things of God. And eventually that callus on our heart gets so thick that it's impossible to crack. That callus gets so thick it's impossible for us to any longer hear the voice of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is quoting the Old Testament and he says this, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. And then Paul kind of interprets that for the church of Corinth. And he says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I don't know where you're at with the Lord. I don't know where you're at there on Gabbatha, that place of inspection. I don't know if you've chosen to believe in Jesus or not. But Paul says, today is your day. Now is the favorable time. It's your day to believe. It's your day to repent of your sins and be saved. As Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
Will you be just another pilot giving in to peer pressure, the fear of rejection, self-preservation, or will you stand beside Jesus? Again, every one of us is at Gabbatha right now examining Jesus. Will you be a pilot or will you fall down at the feet of Jesus and worship him? I encourage you to do that very thing. Receive Christ. Repent of your sins. Call on his name and be saved. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness, Lord. And I just pray that as this word goes out, Lord, that it would reach the hearts of the people that you want it to reach, Lord. And that your perfect and holy and sovereign will be accomplished in each one of our lives. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen.